with you today. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors on the team. And you might want to grab your notes out of your handout. And you'll see we are continuing through a series. Uh, this week, I was having a connect meeting with uh, some of the pastors on our team, and one of the pastors, Pastor Phil, our children's ministry pastor, uh, mentioned to us that he had a leak, like a leaky faucet or a leaky pipe in his house, and, and all of the other pastors immediately, we just begin to groan, and we're like, oh, sort of that discouragement, that collective despair, like, oh, this is going to be a huge bummer. And at the same time, our facilities director was in the room, and he just began to chuckle. Uh, Aaron Talley just began to laugh, because for him, it's like no big deal. He's like, oh my gosh, you guys. And it just brought up sort of that disparity. I just want to ask, show of hands, how many of you are even slightly handy with home improvement stuff around your house? I see those hands. Oh my gosh, wow. I have nothing in common with you. <laughs> but I envy you incredibly. I, um, no, I'm, I'm just, I am absolutely non-gifted in that department. In fact, when it comes to home repair or home improvement, I literally create two budgets. One is the budget for all of the materials I'll need to start the project, and the second is for the professional to bail me out of the project that I've started it. Well, the reason why I bring this up is because Nehemiah is what we're studying right now. We're studying the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the series is so creatively called Nehemiah. And, and, and so what we are doing is looking at this incredible fixer-upper that Nehemiah found himself faced with. And it was the city of Jerusalem. The gates had been burned and the walls had been destroyed and the temple had been dismantled and even the lives of those that were remaining in Jerusalem had, had lost hope and, and they were living in despair. And so there was this massive home improvement project ahead of them. And if you've been tracking with us over the last couple of weeks, you know that God began to stir Nehemiah just with an ache in his heart for the city. And that ache began to birth prayer that Nehemiah leaned into. And that prayer birthed a vision. And then Nehemiah, last week we talked about how he cast that vision. And the people of Israel said, yes, we will do it. Let us put our hand to this good work. So now we're in chapter 3. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to open them to Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, and, and you'll see that as we read through chapter 3, it really is mostly a list. And it's a list of the families and the groupings of people that work on different portions of the gates and the walls. And it actually goes all the way around the city. So it describes the entirety of the work, lists all of the gates around the city of Jerusalem, and lists all of the people, all the families that are committed to working on this project. Now, I want to encourage you to read the entire chapter, but we're only going to start with the first six verses. So we'll jump in, read the first six verses, starting in Nehemiah 3.1. It says... Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jer Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassanah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. 
Mermoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Bana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. You might just want to make a note. We'll come back to that phrase in just a few moments. The, the Jesana gate, the old gate, was repaired by Joad, Joada, the son of Pasia. Th these are unfamiliar names, by the way, to me. And Meshulam, the son of Bessadio, Bessa, uh, we'll just call him Bessie. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. So what you'll see if you read through the rest of that chapter is it actually circumnavigates the entirety of the city of Jerusalem. And the first thing that I want to do is I want to begin by addressing this chapter in a way that looks at, at this project of the spiritual gates in our own lives. Because each one of us has these spiritual gates in our own lives, and a gate is a means of access and egress to the person and the plans of God in our lives. They're also a way to open uh, ourselves up to fellowship and friendship with those who are also on the journey with us. And so it's very important for us to keep the spiritual gates in good repair in our life so that we will experience the fullness that God has in mind for us. And what we see in this chapter is, in other words, God led God's people to prepare God's city where God's presence would dwell uniquely, symbolizing the wholeness and stability that God has in mind for all of his followers. And what I want to do is I want to give you a New Testament uh, passage that really does sort of illustrate what it is that we're going to go through this morning. This is in 2 Peter, a very practical example of what we're talking about today. He says, for this very reason, to make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And so if you imagine each quality is a gate, it starts with faith. The faith gate needs to be strong. That needs to be functional so that you know what it is that you believe in, where to build your convictions on. And then you need to add to that gate. So next to that gate, the goodness gate. And that goodness gate needs to be in good repair so that there's good um, you know, behavior, good love, good action coming out of the way in which you engage in life, etc. And, and the exhortation is that we add each of these qualities to our behavior so that our lives will be fruitful and productive in the Lord. And so in the same way, we're going to look at these spiritual gates with the challenge that there might be some place, and, and so we'll, I'll ask questions that will be somewhat introspective that will deal with what it is that God is calling us to build or rebuild in our own lives. Now, let me be really frank with, with, with you, because some of us, we might have areas in our life where the gates are broken, and so you find yourself very vulnerable to temptation, and you don't know why, because there's a gate that's broken. You might find yourself very vulnerable to despair or discouragement. Why? Because one of those gates is, is non-functioning. 
You might find yourself unproductive in your spiritual life, and you wonder, why am I so stuck? Again, it's one of those gates. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go through gate by gate. We're going to work our way all the way around the city. The first gate mentioned is the Sheep Gate. And the Sheep Gate, if you think of Jerusalem, it's at the northeast corner of the city in Nehemiah's Jerusalem. It's called the Sheep Gate because this is where the sheep would be brought in by the shepherds for the purpose of being the temple sacrifice. So this was right up by the Temple Mount, and so they would be brought in, and there would be the sacrifices made to the Lord in the temple. So if you're filling in the blanks, the Sheep Gate is representative of the cross in our lives. It's representative of, of the cross of Jesus Christ. And the scripture says in Isaiah 53, 7, and this is, it's referencing Jesus. This is a prophetic verse. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. And again, we see that that's how Jesus operated when he was brought in on trial, when he was uh, beaten and whipped and brought to the place of crucifixion. In John chapter 1, verse 29, it says, The next day John, the baptizer, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so again, this idea of, of sheep, it will symbolize sacrifice, and specifically for the Jesus follower, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So this is that picture of the cross at work in our lives. The cross, the, the recognition of the cross and the power of the cross, this is where every Jesus follower begins their faith journey. And I would add, we actually never get beyond this place as well. That this is always powerful. This is always something that we need to remember and keep in mind. The incredible love of Jesus Christ that he would be willing to go through this sacrifice for our sake. So that all of our sin would be removed from us. So that all of our shame. So that our guilt. So that, so that the, the things that continue to trip us up. That, that all of the penalty for that sin would be paid for on the cross by Jesus himself. And this is what we celebrate as Jesus' followers. So this is the very, very beginning. Now, I do want to let you know that when you wrestle this issue to the ground in your own faith journey, some of the things that it means are this. In America, we prize so highly the ability to call our own shots, to do whatever we feel like doing. I can spend my money however I want. I can behave however I want. You know, we, that's sort of this ultimate American freedom kind of a picture. But when it comes to the power of the cross, what it means is we recognize that we are bought with a price. We, we recognize that now Jesus becomes the CEO of our lives. Right? That's what walking with him and obeying him look like is, is we no longer are free just to do whatever we feel like doing. As Jesus followers, we want Jesus to be the one who calls the shots and shows us how it is that we live. And so, again, I would just challenge you. Does this gate need to be in better repair in your life? Do you need to, to come back to this place of the cross, right? To recenter yourself in Jesus and to reground yourself on the reality of his sacrifice on your behalf. And so this must be well built if we are to be strong and steadfast Jesus followers. The next gate, if you're filling it in, 
It's the fish gate, and the fish gate is representative of evangelism. So we are going counterclockwise around the city of Jerusalem, and the next gate, the fish gate, this is near the spot where the present-day Damascus gate is found. And I say the present-day Damascus gate, it's so fun. If you've ever been to to Jerusalem, and I've had the privilege of going a few times, these are the new walls and the new gates, and by new, I mean 600 years old. Okay, so uh, that, was, that was a joke, and I really do appreciate you, Janie. Thank you very much. Yeah, in America, we don't have any kind of a concept of, of the, these centuries. So the idea of the Damascus Gate, and I had this incredible privilege. The last time I was there, we, we had an Overlake group, and we had a Bellevue Presbyterian group, and my dear friend, Pastor Scott Dudley, and I, every morning we'd get up early, and we'd run, we'd take a run all the way around the old city. And so kind of running by all of these gates, and it's incredibly hilly, and you're running down into a valley and up and the hill, and it's, uh, there was definitely one way that I appreciated much more than the other way. Um, But all that to say is that I I have all of this in my mind, and so it was such a joy to get into this chapter and to do this study and to see what all of these gates represent. And so this idea of the fish gate, it was called the fish gate because it was the gate where the fishermen from Galilee and the fishermen from the Mediterranean coast would bring their fish into the city, and that's where they would sell it. That was the marketplace that they would distribute what they had caught. Now, remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He says, follow me, and I will make you, let's hear it, fishers of men. You might want to circle that word. Because what we see is that fish and fishing definitely represents and symbolizes evangelism. This concept of fishers, of men. You think about in the first church, in the first century and beyond, that that the fish was itself a representation of how people would identify themselves as Jesus followers, that ichthys, that they would recognize, yes, I'm a Jesus follower, you're a Jesus follower as well. And so we're called to share our love of Jesus. We're called to invite others into this joyful journey of following Jesus as well. And at Overlake, we believe in what we call relational evangelism. You might want to write that down. Noodle on it a bit. It's it's relational evangelism. In other words, this is the belief and, and the practice that we go after, which is we think it's essential to develop relationships of love and of care, of friendship, of honor. We think that is the groundwork required before we begin to share with people about our faith in Jesus. In other words, it's important to care before you share. And so that's what we practice, and that's what we go after. We think that kind of of evangelism, that kind of invitation is far more powerful than, say, a post on Facebook. Okay? This This is where it really does matter because we care about people, and so we communicate love to people, and we honor people, we listen to people, we dignify people, and then in the midst of those relationships, we invite others to join us on our journey with Jesus. So let me just ask a question. Is this gate in repair in your life? Can you think of the last time you had a caring, 
spiritual conversation with somebody that you do appreciate and you're a friend with, but who isn't a follower of Jesus? Can you think about the last time that you invited a friend to join you on a Sunday morning and then to have brunch afterwards and kind of process what it was that was covered? See, we've got to make sure that this is a functioning gate in our lives or we're going to miss out on the things that Jesus has in mind for us. So the, the, the first gate represents the cross. The second gate represents evangelism. The next gate that we're going to go after is the old gate. And that represents truth. As you're reading through the passage, this is where uh, it's referred to as the Jeshana Gate, the Jeshana Gate. And in Hebrew, this means the old gate. It would be located near the present day Jaffa Gate. And it represents the old ways of truth versus the new illusions of error. So the world is constantly proposing something new from like the New Age movement to even the, the theories behind the Da Vinci Code book. Uh, you might argue there's nothing new about heresy. Uh, you'd be right. But scripture calls us back to the old way. Look at this. In Jeremiah 6, this is what the Lord says. Stop at the crossroads and look around. We could pause right there. Such great advice. There are so many different crossroads and so many different pathways that the world is constantly pitching for us to follow. So many voices saying, hey, this is the way, walk in it. This is the way, walk in it. And and the encouragement from the Lord, no, stop at the crossroads, right? Stop at the crossroads and, and, and look around you. And then he says, ask for the old godly way and walk in it. Travel its path, and you will find rest for your souls. Somebody has said, if something is new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. And it is interesting, right? Because what we see is truth, capital T, truth, comes from the Father of truth, who's our Heavenly Father. And God is constant. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So truth never changes. Now, facts can be discovered, but truth is eternal. Truth has nothing to hide. And that this gate calls us back to the basics of truth, that, that we all live our lives under the, the careful, watchful eye of an all-loving, all-powerful, and all-knowing God who desires to be in relationship with us. And we can come to him. We can believe in him. We can be born again because of his love. We can learn to love others then in a way that's outlandish in the same way that he loves us. We can live out of his strength, which serves us uh, to not only um, get our needs met, but then to serve others in radical ways and, and to live with a hope that endures because we have a God, a father who endures. Friends, these are the old godly ways. These are the pathways that we are to walk in. And, and this is what this gate reminds us of. The next gate is the valley gate, and the valley gate represents humility. And then this is in verse 13, we come to the valley gate. This would be located at the southwestern corner of Jerusalem. And a valley in scripture represents humility in our lives. Theologian John Stott calls humility that rarest and fairest of Christian values. If pride is the ultimate sin, and it is, then humility is the ultimate virtue. 
And this is what we so clearly see in Jesus modeled for us. 1 Peter 5.5 says, And all of you serve each other in humility. You might just want to circle that. Serve each other in humility. For God opposes the proud, but favors the humble. What this means is, when I begin acting in pride, it means God actively begins to resist me. Why would you want God to actively resist you? I I don't. I don't want God to resist me. I I want God to help me. I want God to be a resource and an asset uh, in my life. And, And there's a way in which the scripture says that happens. That's if I have humility. Because he lifts up the humble. He raises up the humble, but he resists the proud. And what's so interesting to me about this concept of of pride and and humility is that every Jesus follower starts the journey with Jesus through the gateway of humility. We, We can't begin our journey with Jesus unless we begin with this humble recognition that I cannot do for myself what only Jesus can do for me that I cannot forgive myself, I cannot save myself, that I need his help, I need his grace, I need his covering, right? So it all starts with humility, but, but isn't it interesting how quickly we move from there? And we end up in places of pride. Now, I, I do want to let you know, part of that is the way that the world operates. And so you think about the way that the celebrity culture works in this world. And I'm talking about all across the world. I'm talking about in most cultures, you know, just that concept of, I am the greatest, right? That, that, that idea of, of uh, and then the whole world celebrate. Oh, that person, is, you know, the, the pride there, the arrogance there, the freedom they have to be so cocky, right? That's wonderful. We love it. And it's across the board, whether it's celebrity in terms of, you know, movie stars or, or rock stars or celebrity in terms of athletes and, and people who can, you know, excel on the field, various different uh, ways of sport or celebrity in terms of politicians and the attitude the politicians might have. The idea is, look, we, we, we see a culture that just celebrates that, but we've got to fight against it because we don't want God opposing us. So let me just ask you, can we be introspective for a moment? Where are there areas of pride within you? Where is is this gate non-functional? Maybe there's some pride in a relationship that you have with a spouse. And you're not going to bend. There's no way you're moving from where you are right now. Maybe there's pride in a relationship with a parent or maybe it's with a, a child. And you know you're right. And it's not going to change. You know, I, I won't change. They need to change. Maybe there's a pride in, in a workspace. And you're being challenged because there's a, a new way to do something that you're trying to be trained on. Somebody's trying to train you on. There's, there's some new kind of a purpose to pursue. But, but you're, you're proud and you're entitled and you want to do it the way it's always been done. And you're not going to move. And see, Where is that pride? Because I know this happens. Right? We need to lay that down. We need to find this, lay it down, make sure that this humility gate is working well in our lives. Uh, Jesus actually invites us here. The scripture says this in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So interesting to me that when we walk the road of humility, 
We have rest for our souls. Remember as we were going through Nehemiah 3 and in verse 5, we read this interesting verse about how the nobles would not put their shoulders to the work? Why do you think that is? Pride. Right? They, the pride. They, they, they couldn't condescend to work with everybody else. And so what does that pride accomplish? It slows the progress. And you think about what had happened in Jerusalem. The progress had been slow for 141 years. Why would they be a part of that? It's pride. So that's where we have to kind of uh, do the work and just see, okay, where is it that I'm being proud? What do I need to lay down? And in fact, this brings us to our next gate. This is the dung gate, and the dung gate represents elimination. It's the celebration of elimination. And this idea of dung gate, it's, it's a horrible name, dung gate. And it, it, I mean, it just sounds disgusting unless you're a dung beetle, and then you're like, party! Uh, but the dung gate, the dung gate would have been, um, it, it, I, I, we got a picture of it. it. The idea is that this is where all of the rubbish and the garbage of the city would be brought and it would be dumped out into the Hinnom Valley. And this uh, dump area was called Gehenna and it was just outside the city. And, and it's necessary for us spiritually to have a gate like this as well because we have to recognize the areas in our lives where there is, uh, you know, stuff that's toxic, where there's stuff in our lives that's corrosive. We're carrying around stuff that's just refuse, and we need to be able to get rid of it. And this is what it says in, in 2 Corinthians 7.1. The Apostle Paul writes, Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. Let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. And so this is one of the reasons why some people are unable to function well. You, you might find yourself feeling stuck in your spiritual life. But it's because maybe there are some things you need to eliminate from your life, right? This is where you recognize maybe it's a, it's a secret sin or behavior. Maybe there's this, this unhealthy thought processing that you continue to cycle into, right? Maybe it's just some behavior that you have, you know, you got caught up in a habit and, and it's unhelpful and it's, it's dragging you down or it's hurting your relationships or it's getting between you and the Lord. But whatever that looks like, why we, we recognize this is not helpful for me in my spiritual journey. And so we eliminate it, right? Where is it in your life that you just need to hit flush? Amen. Just get rid of that crud. And again, you just ask Jesus for your help. We're not rebuilding any of these gates on our own strength, friends. We can ask Jesus to help us each and every step of the way. And certainly he will do that here. We confess these things. We bring, him, we bring them to him in humility, right? We use the humble gate as well. And then brings us to the next gate, which is the fountain gate. The fountain gate is representative of the spirit of God. This is the sixth gate. It's in verse 15. Near the pool of Siloam, and it speaks of a fountain springing up bubbling over reminds us of Jesus words in John 7 where he spoke of rivers of living water coming from those who believe in him and what he's doing is describing the work the ministry of the holy spirit 
This is a picture of the spirit-filled life overflowing our lives, spilling out onto others. And you will notice it's not coincidental that it comes immediately after the dung gate. Right, So right after we confess, right after we ask Jesus, hey, this is the stuff that I, I need your help eliminating, then the work of the Holy Spirit comes and cleanses us, and it brings us joy, empowering us to live a life that he is calling us to live. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5 that we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'd, I'd love to have you circle that word filled. Because filled, it means one thing in English, but when Paul's writing, he's writing in, in the Greek, and what this word means is it's not only be filled like a one-time fill a cup. It means be filled and continuously be filled. So that every time we expend energy, every time we maybe slop a little bit of that water out, you know, the idea is that we ask the Spirit to fill us again and again and again. That we constantly, daily invite His presence, invite His guidance, invite His power to help us live. Brings us to the next gate. This is the Watergate. Watergate has nothing to do with Nixon. It represents the Word, right? The Watergate represents the Word of God. This is in verse 26. Located at the spring of Gihon, this is where Hezekiah's tunnel begins, if you've been over to Jerusalem. And water, specifically in the book of Isaiah, is a symbol of the wisdom of God, the word of God, the will of God. And this is the gate that reminds us of our need of God's counsel in our lives often. So how in repair is this gate in your life? How functional is this gate of God's word? Are you regularly in his word? Are you letting his word speak into your life? Are you humbly coming to his word and, and bringing your life underneath the leadership of his will as he communicates to you through his word? See, friends, we have to keep these gates functional. It brings us to the next gate, which is the horse gate. The horse gate in verse 28, and this represents battle. This is found on the eastern wall of Jerusalem, and what we see in the scriptures very often is that the symbol of battle is the horse, and you just might want to think about how battle happened back in the ancient world. They didn't have tanks or airplanes or warships, so the idea is the horse was that symbol of a warrior, of a, of a battlefield. And specifically, in Proverbs 21, 31, we read, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. And what I, I would just tell you I need about this gate is it reminds me that the spiritual journey is not just a picnic. That's right. Somebody's living it. I love you, Deb. This idea, uh, you know, we sometimes think that we enter into this spiritual journey and then it's just going to be a luxury cruise for the rest of our lives. It's not a cruise, it's a battleship, right? The, the, the Bible is very clear that there is a spiritual battle going on. And so we are encouraged to prepare for the battle, right? This is why the word of God is so important. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 would be a great resource as far as suiting up every day with the armor that God provides for the battle that we know we're going to face. And the reason why I need this lesson is because I find myself so often surprised. 
right? It's just, what in the world did that, how come that temptation came in? What in the world, why is that trial coming in right now? How come this, this plan, it's so clearly God's vision. Why in the world are we having trouble pursuing God's vision? Oh, there's, there's a battle going on. Right? There's an enemy of God. There's an enemy of your soul. And it's coming against the work of God in your life and through your life. And, and suddenly now it's not a surprise. But now we can recognize that God is with us in the battle. And yes, we can get discouraged as we fight these battles that, that we find ourselves in. But we have to take heart. Why? Because Jesus has overcome. Amen. Okay. So this reminder that, that there is a battle and we need to be ready for it. It brings us to the East Gate. This is so essential. The East Gate represents hope for us. This is in verse 29. Today, it's actually called the Golden Gate. And it is opposite the temple area, the temple mount. It faces the rising sun. Uh, this is where it, it, it's um, said that the Messiah will actually enter into Jerusalem through this Golden Gate. But what's so interesting is it's not open today. Right, so that will be a, a kind of a miraculous entry there. And it's the gate of hope and expectation. So often, this is the gate that is in ruins in a Jesus follower's life. So often, it is discouragement leading to despair. It's isolation leading to a sense of hopelessness. And certainly, I would tell you, we, we absolutely live in a fallen world. And even, I would just say, the last few months, there's been example after example after example of just how fallen it is. And I understand that it's easy to lose hope. And friends, this is why this gate is so essential for us. We have got to make sure that this gate is functional in our lives because what the East Gate tells us is that God has a greater glory yet to be revealed. It tells us there's a glory awaiting the followers of Jesus. There's a resurrected glory that all of creation will be brought into, that death and destruction and, and, and pain, this is not the end of the story. Suffering does not have the last word. Pain does not have the last word. Death does not have the last word. Friends, hope has the last word. And finally, we come to the inspection gate. And the inspection gate is representative of accountability. This is mentioned in verse 31, and it represents the reality that we are accountable for the lives that we choose to live. We're accountable for the choices that we make in this lifetime. It says this in Hebrews 9.27 in the message paraphrase, everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. In other words, there will be an inspection. Many of you know that my father was a career Marine. And so I grew up under, you know, in, under, in his home and and so often there would be a chore given and then an inspection following. So, for example, I, I remember many times this happened, that the, the chore would be go clean your room. And then after the room was clean, I, I had to call down ready for inspection. 
And I would just kind of stand, you know, at attention sometimes, you know, salute as he walked in. And, and my dad would come in with his hands behind his back and he would look around. Uh, there were occasions he would try to flip a quarter on my, my made bed, uh, which never uh, worked at all. Uh, he would inevitably discover the dirty clothes underneath the bed that had somehow been shoved there. I had no idea. Uh, or the, the toys that had just been thrown into the closet and then the door shut, right? And, and, and so there's this recognition that he would inspect what he expected of me. And this is true spiritually, that, that we are going to give an account. We're going to give an account of the choices that we've made and the way in which we have treated other human beings made in the image of God. We're going to give an account of the way we stewarded the resources that God has placed in our hands to steward. We're going to give an account of the thoughts that we have and the beliefs that foster themselves into the convictions that we choose to build our lives upon. All of these things we will give an account of. And even the sense that we will give an account of the excuses that we've told ourselves helping us opt out of the vision and the calling that God has had for us. I mean, th- this, is, this is just true. That, and, and there are many reasons. Like, it's, it's so true. There are many times we use excuses that opt us out of what God's calling us to. And what's interesting to me is I don't even know if we know what's going on when we give ourselves those excuses. I read an, a, a write-up of a book that's just come out. It's called... Before You Know It, that's the book title, Before You Know It, and it's this psychologist, sociologist who's doing a bunch of experiments on how it is that we make decisions, does an interesting experiment where he'll bring a group of people, or one by one he'll bring people in and allow them to choose if they want to hold a hot cup of coffee or if they want to hold a cold beverage, so they get a choice, and then each person is given a list of character qualities about a fictional character, and then asked to give a judgment about what they think about this character. So it's the same qualities, but everyone who held the, the warm cup of coffee decided that this fictional character, after reading these qualities, was likable, trustworthy, engaging, someone that they would want to be around. Conversely, everybody holding the cold beverage found this person to be distant, untrustworthy, unlikable. Friends, this is why we give you free coffee. (laughs) Thank you. He's had a lot of it today. I want to tell you, does that not like terrify you just a little bit? That you don't even know why it is that you make certain judgments about people or different situations. Like there is so much going on and this is why we have to examine and be introspective. This is why we have to pray that prayer from Psalm 139. Search me, O God. Know my thoughts. I see if there's any uh, wicked way within me, if there's any selfish way, if there's anything that I'm doing that's, that I'm convincing myself to opt out of the calling that you have for me. 
And specifically, I bring this up because right now God's calling us into this thing called the Katali Project right now where we're working to get street kids off the streets and back into homes. And I just know some of you are like, eh, ah, it just it doesn't touch me. Not interested. And I just, I really do. I'm like begging you to examine why. Why? Like, like, like just saying, oh, it's, it's just far away. Like that, that doesn't cut it. Right? Just saying, ah, oh, they don't really have a need. That doesn't cut. Just saying, why aren't we serving around here? We are. Like, like, like there's just so much going on. And if you have questions, we've got answers. So please just understand. Like, I know that a, a family the size of Overlake, there's many, many questions. We've got, you know, an answer for every question. That's okay. But please do the work of recognizing that God will inspect what he has expected from us. And God has called us into something very beautiful. Look what it says here. This is in Proverbs chapter 24. It says, don't try to avoid responsibility. We could just stop right there, but it keeps going. Don't try to avoid responsibility by saying you didn't know about it. For God knows all hearts and he sees you. He keeps watch over your soul and he knows you knew and he will judge all people according to what they have done. Okay. Now, I do want to make sure I'm really, really clear, because I would hate for anyone to misunderstand. The Bible says that for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, this inspection will not result in condemnation. Romans 8, 1, if you want to look it up, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So actually, the Apostle Paul is very clear that this inspection is going to be not for condemnation, for commendation. That there are rewards and there are blessings and there are ways in which God wants to honor and bless those who have fulfilled what it is that he has called them to fulfill. That is the purpose of this accountability. But please remember that we are going to stand before the Lord and we will give an account. Right? This will be an inspection. And so what we see is that we've compassed now the walls of Jerusalem. Each gate has given us a different insight into what wholeness spiritually looks like. And this is what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to live this whole, this full, this rich life. And and we can invite his help. But what I think this whole chapter really does push us toward, the challenge of this chapter is simply twofold. Number one is that we are to work individually. We are to commit ourselves to the work that God has for us individually. And and that's why I've asked a series of introspective questions this morning. Because this kind of soul work only you can do. Only you are responsible for your spiritual journey. It it cannot be another person's responsibility. You can't farm that one out. Does that make sense? So this is the work that we have to do to make sure that all of the gates of our spiritual lives are functioning and that there's expressions of all of them really easy for us to see, okay, that that's how we operate. And it brings us to the second command, which is what I think the whole chapter reveals, and that is that we are to work together. We're to work together. Together as God's people, together as God's church, together for God's kingdom and the world that God loves. And And what I love about this passage is that the entire city gives themselves to this work. 
It was the nobles and it was the leaders and it was the peasants. It was those with means and those with no means. It was, it was these family units. So you had the older generation and the middle-aged generation and you had you know, the teenagers and then you had the, the elementary school kids and younger and everyone was a part of this work. And how I know God valued this, if you read the chapter, is because God wrote every name down. He mentioned all of the people and all of the family groups that were working together in order to accomplish the vision that God had given them. God cares about his people, and he cares who does the work that he calls them to, and he wants to write our names in his book. But it's all of us together. I read this interesting story about a fairly famous surgeon, Dr. Cooley. You might be familiar with this surgeon, Dr. Cooley. He was the first person to build a fully artificial heart and the first successful artificial heart transplant. And he actually has accomplished many other things. And and so there was an author who was doing a biography of Dr. Cooley, and he was kind of shadowing him around his rounds and, and just kind of watching how he went around uh, about his surgery and his schedule and everything. And, and so this author was following Dr. Cooley as he walked through the hotel hallway, and he saw Dr. Cooley stop and talk with one of the janitors in the hallway, a man with a mop, and, and he's he saw that Dr. Cooley spoke with him not just for a a few seconds or a minute, but spent about 10 minutes with this man conversing. And then suddenly Dr. Cooley looked at his watch and rushed off to surgery. And so the author was curious. He came up and and he spoke with this man. He said, hey, you and Dr. Cooley had, had kind of a long conversation. And the man with the mop said, yes, Dr. Cooley and I are friends. We often stop and chat about various things. And so the author was, he, you know, he found that cute. And he said, um, well, can you tell me what exactly you do here at the hospital? And the man looked at him and said, we save lives. In other words, he, he knew exactly what he was about. He was about exactly the same work that Dr. Cooley was about. And even though Dr. Cooley had a different role than he had, they were accomplishing exactly the same thing. And in this chapter, I can just picture the little toddlers who are picking up the pebbles and bringing the pebbles over to a pile, and those pebbles would be put on the wall as it was constructed. And, 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 and I could imagine if you asked one of those toddlers, hey, what are you doing? They would not say, I'm moving pebbles. They'd say, I'm restoring the glory of God to Jerusalem. They would say, I am bringing glory and honor to God, and I'm giving my people a hope and a future. And they'd know that they were a part of a larger work. Why? Because God wants his people to work together. And so, friends, what I want you to do is bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's just pray that Jesus will do all of the work within us that he wants to do, and that he will do all of the work through us that he wants to do as we work together. Jesus, we love you. And we are so thankful for the way in which you meet us. Lord, my prayer over my brothers and sisters here this morning is that there is no one here who feels a sense of shame over anything we've talked about. Lord, I want you to meet every one of us here with the recognition that there are areas of our lives where the spiritual gates are in disrepair. And we invite you our loving and gracious Savior and Lord, to come and help us do the work of restoration. We want to live the fullness, the wholeness. We want to live the beauty of this amazing life 
of relationship with you, where we experience your outlandish love and spill it out all over this world in which we live. Please help us to do just that. And when it comes to the work you've called us to, Lord, we recognize that we need your help. And so we invite you to move in our hearts. What we really want is that you would encourage the entire family to go after your calling together. We, we want to be a part of, of seeing your glory manifest. We want to be a part of seeing lives be restored with hope and with future. And we ask that you would show us what that looks like as we commit our hand to this work together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.